Let us pray. Oh, Father, we pray that You might purge our hearts through Your Son and the work of Your Holy Spirit of all that defiles. We pray that we might cling to Your Word as our ultimate and supreme authority, that we might submit our lives, our ideas, our practices, everything to the authority of Your Scripture. And Father, today we pray that You would speak to us through Your Scripture, that we might be transformed, that we might be more and more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. For we know this is the goal of our salvation. In His name we pray. Amen. This part of Mark 7 deals with some very basic, uh, very foundational issues. Uh, The controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees brings to the surface some very fundamental truths that uh, no matter how familiar we are already with them, uh, they're worth exploring again, they're worth reviewing. Uh, Of course, as we saw last week, the gospel itself is the central issue here between Jesus and the Pharisees, the way of salvation. Uh, Jesus and the Pharisees both agree something is wrong with the world. They both agree that when the kingdom of God comes, what is wrong will be set right. But they disagree over the source of what is wrong, and so they disagree over the shape of the solution. Uh, For the Pharisees, uncleanness only moves outside in. Their hearts are clean, they think. So all they have to do is keep their hands clean with their ceremonial washings, and they will have done their part. But for Jesus... The human heart is unclean. And so what flows out of the human heart spreads uncleanness into the world. And the only way this problem can be solved is through a transformation of heart, a cleansing of heart. Another kind of washing is needed. A washing not merely of water, but of blood from a perfect sacrifice. Now Mark doesn't tell us here how that sacrifice will be offered, how that cleansing will come. But if you keep reading, if you keep reading His Gospel, you come to the end of it and you see how. Jesus Himself will be that sacrifice. The cleansing water and blood will flow out of His heart and will transform our hearts. See, for the Pharisees, sinners cannot be saved. For Jesus, only sinners can be saved. Only those who acknowledge and confess their sin can be cleansed. And so really, the issue here between Jesus and the Pharisees is the ultimate issue of all. It is nothing less than the true way of salvation. The Pharisees need to answer the question, what's wrong with the world, by saying, we are. We are what's wrong with the world. We are part of the problem. But because they won't answer the question that way, they don't see themselves as part of the problem. They miss out on the message of Jesus. They will miss out on the kingdom when it comes through Christ's death and resurrection. That's really the main issue here, the central issue. What's wrong with the world? Why is the world unclean? And what can be done about it? Where is washing to be found? How does it come? That's the main issue. But there are several subsidiary issues that uh, also emerge here. And I think these issues, even though they may be secondary in a way to that issue are significant enough and important enough for us to consider. And I want us to look at three of them this morning. 
We're going to look at what this text says about tradition, what it says about mission, and what it says about transformation. These three things. Let's start with tradition. It's so important to understand that in this passage, even though obviously there's this this fight over tradition between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus is not attacking tradition in general. Tradition is not bad in itself. In fact, it's inescapable. You cannot have community with any kind of order or structure without tradition. Let me just give you a very simple example of a very low-level tradition. Uh, We have a tradition. It is our ritual as a church to meet for worship here on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Now, what if we just said, you know, uh, we'll just decide from week to week when we worship and where we worship. And and so everything was constantly in flux. You didn't know where Trinity Presbyterian Church was going to show up, where it was going to gather for worship, when it would gather for worship. Uh, I imagine that our community would have a very hard time surviving that kind of chaos. The fact is, to have any kind of community, you have to have structure. You have to have established patterns of doing things. That's really what tradition is. Traditions are patterns of action and belief we inherit from those who have gone before us. In a way, you could think of tradition in the broadest sense as the culture we inherit. Uh, The word for tradition in Scripture simply means what is handed down. What is handed down or passed on from one generation to the next. And there are plenty of good and necessary traditions in the church. Tradition includes doctrines and rituals that the church must preserve unchanged. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul calls the ritual of the Lord's Supper a tradition. It was passed on to him and he passed it on to the Corinthians. And it was passed on from the first and second generation of Christians to each subsequent generation of Christians. It's a ritual that we are to do until the Lord comes again, until the final coming of Jesus. It's a tradition the church is to maintain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel itself is called a tradition. Paul says, I received this message about the death and resurrection of Jesus and I pass it on to you. It's a tradition. In the book of Jude, we read that we must contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That is to say, the content of the faith is a tradition that is to be defended and preserved from one generation to the next. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Hold fast to the traditions you were taught, whether by word or by letter." That is to say, upholding apostolic tradition is a biblical command. There are certain traditions we are commanded to uphold. But you know, tradition gets a bad rap these days. Uh, In fact, I think sometimes the way Mark 7 is read lends itself to this. Sometimes Mark 7 is read as if it were teaching that all tradition and all ritual are basically meaningless or at least unimportant, the externals really don't matter. What counts is the heart. But that kind of dichotomy between the heart and the body, or between the inside and the outside, that kind of dichotomy really misses the point of what's going on here. It's very clear from Mark 7 that both internals and externals matter. 
what is expressed or done outwardly shows what is inside of us. And what we do outwardly in terms of traditions and rituals actually shapes our hearts. It shapes us within. The Pharisees' outward traditions and rituals matter a great deal. Where, after all, we might ask, did the Pharisees get the idea that what goes into a man makes him unclean? Where did they get that idea? That what goes into a man makes him unclean. They got that idea, that doctrine from their ritual. The ritual probably preceded the doctrine. Repeated traditions, repeated rituals can shape and influence belief, which is why it is so important to get them right. Both the inside and the outside matter. They may matter in different ways, but they both matter. Jesus is showing us here ritual and tradition themselves are not the problem. Rather, there are good and bad rituals. There are good and bad traditions. We don't reject tradition in and of itself. We want to reject bad tradition. It's very interesting to me, you know, here we are living in the Bible Belt. Very interesting to me that Christians in the South seem to really like tradition everywhere except for church. We prize tradition. We give tradition a high place everywhere, it seems, but in our churches. And of course, that's because tradition does bring a sense of order and security. And so we have family traditions that we want to maintain. Holiday traditions. Uh, We have college football traditions. Don't you dare mess with those. Uh, They're they're practically sacred around you. Those traditions are usually appreciated, so why isn't tradition appreciated in the church? Why is it that for so many around us, tradition is good when it comes to family and to football, but not church? G.K. Chesterton said, tradition is the democracy of the dead. It is a way of expressing respect for our elders. Yaroslav Pelikan said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Certainly traditionalism is a problem where you just go through the motions and your heart is not in it. Traditionalism as an unthinking and unappreciative reception of the past. That is very problematic. But tradition itself is not. A problem. Tradition is an excellent servant, but it's a terrible master. It's one authority. It's an authority we ought to expect, but it's not the only authority, and it's certainly not the highest authority. In fact, in Mark 7, the discussion over tradition is really a discussion about authority. The Pharisees have put their traditions in the place of God's Word, and thus, Jesus says, they have nullified the command of God. For Jesus, Scripture is the standard by which all traditions are judged and measured. Note that for Jesus, the Scripture's authority is equivalent to God's authority. Jesus viewed Scripture as God's Word, as carrying God's own authority. That's how Jesus viewed the Bible. See, we live in a day where some people think they can have a high view of Jesus and a low view of Scripture. They can appreciate all kinds of things about Jesus while being very critical of the Bible. That's just not the case. It's just not possible. You're not following Jesus in a very critical way 
if that's your view. Jesus himself had the highest possible view of Scripture, and if we are followers of Jesus, we must follow him in his view of the Bible. He saw Scripture as the highest authority, as carrying God's own authority. We must as well. So what happens in this passage when Jesus puts the Pharisees' traditions up against Scripture? Well, we see here with the Pharisees, you have a good case of tradition turned toxic. It is possible for traditions about religious ritual or about doctrine to grow up in the church in such a way that they supplant the Word of God. That's really the charge Jesus brings against the Pharisees in verse 9. All too well, he says, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Your tradition doesn't apply the Word of God. It doesn't supplement the Word of God in a way that's consistent with that Word. You've actually put your tradition in place of God's Word because your tradition contradicts God's Word. You put your own Word in place of God's. You put man's Word in place of the Word of God. See, Jesus is showing us here all, all tradition must be tested by a higher standard, the Word of God. Scripture is the supreme and final and only infallible standard we have. Oh yes, tradition is useful. Tradition is a necessary tool. But all traditions must be evaluated by God's Word. All traditions must be tested by the Word of God. Some traditions are valid applications of Scripture and are consistent with Scripture. Others are not. They're in opposition to Scripture. And here Jesus identifies two such traditions, two traditions that oppose the Word of God, that arose in Israel... Uh, apparently during what we call the intertestamental period, that period between the completion of the Hebrew Scriptures and the coming of Jesus. Jesus says here in Mark 7, what comes out of man is defiling. One of the things that comes out of man is false tradition. And that's what you have here. These traditions that have come out of man are evil. These traditions are not from God. They are the wicked inventions of men. Now, last week we looked at one of these traditions. We saw why the Pharisees' tradition of baptizing their hands and other utensils before eating was a way of laying aside the command of God. God's Word always pointed to the human heart as the real source of defilement. The tradition of the elders trained the people to think of defilement as coming from the outside rather than the inside. That's one tradition that contradicts God's Word. Then in verses 10-13, through 13, we have another example of tradition that contradicts the commands of God. For the sake of honoring the tradition of the elders, the Pharisees were dishonoring their nearest elders, their own parents. Their tradition basically created a self-serving loophole that allowed them to escape their obligation to care for their aging parents. They had constructed uh, a very convenient system of holiness uh, that allowed them to serve themselves with their wealth rather than the rest of their family. Basically, it went something like this, as best we can piece it together. They said that a property had been declared korban. Uh, it belonged to God. That's what korban means. It means property has been devoted to God. But here's the thing. Here's how they worked it out. Korban expressed one's intention to eventually give the property to God, probably the temple. 
but it did not require the actual disposal of that property so that when a person declared his property korban, he could continue to use it in the meantime. And then perhaps at a later point, even uh, perhaps at his death, it would be given over to God and to the temple. And so the Pharisees would conveniently declare their property korban so that they could not give it to their parents to support them in old age, but then they would continue to make use of it themselves. And they could say, sorry, mom and dad, uh, I can't care for you. I have done the holy thing. I have devoted all my goods to the temple. And then they would continue to use those goods and not share with their parents. Something like that was happening. Now, according to Jesus, this is a flagrant violation of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment to honor father and mother. Indeed, as Jesus goes on to say, it was really a way of cursing father and mother. See, in those days, kids were really your retirement program. Your retirement plan was bound up in your children. And so children who did not care for their parents in old age doomed their parents to misery in their final years. Jesus quotes here the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20, but he leaves off the promise. The fifth commandment had a promise attached, a promise of long life. Jesus leaves off the promise of life and instead quotes another verse from Exodus chapter 21, which requires the death penalty for anyone who curses mother or father. So instead of the promise of life that you get with honoring your mother and father, what the Pharisees are doing is dealing death. They're cursing their parents and really deserve death. Now clearly, Jesus did not think that you had to be some kind of expert in the law to see the hypocrisy of this whole system. It's just right there on the face of the Ten Commandments. It's very obvious what the Pharisees are doing is wicked. And Jesus makes it clear, God hates this kind of thing. When unholiness masquerades as holiness, when we put our own laws in place of His, when we neglect His Word in order to hold to our own traditions and ideas, when we put our ideas, our laws, our Word in place of His, when we have a man-made religion that is cloaked to look like devotion to God, God hates that kind of thing. Now, does that kind of thing still happen today? Sure, it does. There are churches today that in the name of equality or some other traditional virtue nullify what God's Word teaches about sexuality, particularly about homosexual practice. There are churches that bow before icons out of tradition and in so doing nullify the plain meaning of the second commandment. What Jesus is doing here with the traditions of the Pharisees must still be done in our own day. Every tradition of man must be tested by the final standard of God's inerrant and infallible Word. We must never let tradition take on a life of its own. Because if we do, it will end up distorting what it means to be holy. Scripture is infallible. Tradition is not. We can't use our own traditions, our own standards, our own man-made traditions to define sin or to define virtue. 
God alone defines sin and virtue in His Word. God alone has authority to declare what is necessary for salvation. God alone is Lord of the conscience. That's the first lesson here. That's the first lesson here. Tradition must submit. Tradition must submit to the Word of God. Just because something has a claim to being an old practice in the church, just because something looks really cool, just because something seems to be a great liturgical idea, doesn't mean that it is. Everything must be tested by the standard of Scripture. That's the first lesson here. The second lesson here has to do with mission. Uh, Verse 19, it's very interesting. When Jesus explained that what enters a man from outside cannot defile him, Mark adds this comment that Jesus thus declared all foods clean. In other words, Jesus rescinded the Mosaic dietary laws. God had declared for the nation of Israel certain foods to be unclean. Here, Jesus nullifies those laws. Uh, We we read a little bit of that, of, of those laws in Deuteronomy 14. Jesus takes all of that and He says those laws are no longer going to be applicable. At least in the sense that they have to be carried out precisely. Now, this is very ironic, and I think it adds to the parable-like quality of what's going on in this story. Think about this. Jesus says the Pharisees are nullifying the command of God by their tradition. But it looks like Jesus is the one nullifying the command of God by declaring all foods clean. Jesus says the Pharisees are nullifying the Word of God by their tradition, but actually by the time you get to the end of the story, it looks like Jesus is the one who has nullified the Word of God by declaring all foods clean. The Pharisees may be adding to God's law, but it looks an awful lot like Jesus is subtracting from God's law. So what gives? How do we put this together? How is it that Jesus can simply declare the unclean food laws to no longer be binding? How is it that Jesus can modify or transform the law of God in this way? Well, Jesus has authority to transform the law of God in this way because He is God in the flesh. He has authority to declare Scripture fulfilled. His authority is on par with God. So that's part of what's going on here. Jesus is exerting His divine authority in cleansing all foods. I guess that's pretty simple. That's the simple part of it. What I think is is just as important for us to understand here is why Jesus takes this step. And understanding why Jesus does this, why He declares all foods clean, is a little more complicated. See, we have to understand the symbolism bound up in those laws about unclean foods, unclean animals. We have to understand, the unclean animals represented the Gentiles. Israelites could not eat unclean animals because they were to be a separated and holy people. Israel's dietary code symbolized her special place and her special role amongst the nations. It marked Israel off from her pagan neighbors. But you have to see, too, That barrier between Israel and the nations didn't go all the way back to creation. It just came into effect at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Israel. So it had a definite starting point in history. And that barrier between Israel and the nations was not meant to last forever. 
It was only a temporary system. Eventually, the nations would be cleansed, and indeed, the nations would be incorporated into Israel. Jesus breaks with the ancestral traditions of Israel because in His ministry, that time has arrived. In His ministry, a new world is being born. A new age is dawning. He's pointing to a new way of being Israel. A way of being Israel that will include the Gentile nation. In Jesus, the plot line of Israel is coming to resolution. Israel's story is coming to its climax. Here in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus declares all foods clean, He is anticipating what is shortly to come. He is anticipating what is to come after His death and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He has come to open up God's covenant to the nation. And you see this begin to be worked out in passages like Acts chapter 10, which we read from this morning. There in Acts chapter 10, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision. And he is told to kill and eat what had previously been unclean under the law. And this is in the same context in which Peter is being told to go to the Gentile household of Cornelius so that Cornelius, this Gentile and his family, can hear the Gospel and receive the Holy Spirit and enter into the new Israel, the new covenant. See, when Peter kills and eats what had previously been unclean, he will incorporate that food into himself. And in the same way, when Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit, we'll see that Gentiles are now being incorporated into the body of Israel. That's what's happening here. Peter balks at first. He doesn't want to kill and eat. He says, I've never eaten anything unclean. Even though Peter knew this had happened with Jesus, he was so steeped in the the Mosaic dietary laws and the traditions of the elders that he could not bring himself to do this. But Peter does obey. Peter obeys and goes to Cornelius. He preaches the Gospel. Cornelius and his household receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter sees, yes, it is true. God has cleansed the Gentiles. God has accepted the Gentiles. There are now no more unclean foods because there are no unclean people groups for those unclean foods to represent. And so, make this a really practical sermon, every time you eat bacon, you ought to thank God for the inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant community. Because that's what your bacon eating represents. That God has cleansed The nations, that's what it means. See, in Mark 7, we find that the mission of Jesus is ultimately going to transcend the limitations of Israel as she existed under the food laws, as she existed under the dietary code. The food laws were the main obstacle to fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. Now, technically, under the law, Jews were not forbidden to eat with Gentiles. And in fact, Gentiles were welcome to come and participate in the temple services. Gentiles who trusted in Yahweh and Israel's Lord could come to the temple and offer sacrifice. They could participate in all the different sacrifices of the temple system except for the Passover because Passover required circumcision. But practically speaking, 
the food laws did keep Jews from mingling with Gentiles. That's why Peter says it's not our tradition, it's not our custom to associate with Gentiles. So again, when Peter is told to go to Cornelius, it shocks his Jewish sensibilities. His whole Jewish identity is at stake. Because his whole Jewish identity is bound up in keeping that dietary code. Peter knows that just a few generations earlier, faithful Jews had died rather than violate the Mosaic dietary code. And they were martyrs. They were heroes in the nation of Israel. Because rather than let any unclean thing touch their lips, they were made faithful to God. And now Peter's being told to kill and eat what has been unclean. But see, through it all, through the vision and through the preaching to Cornelius, what does Peter learn? Peter learns that God is not a God of the Jews only, but of all nations. God has come to us in Jesus to make Himself and His salvation available not just to the sons of Israel, but to everyone. Every race, every socioeconomic class of people are welcomed in. The Gospel means the end of racism, classism, tribalism. Peter's conclusion after witnessing Cornelius and his household receive the Holy Spirit, Peter's conclusion in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35 is fitting. He says, In truth, I perceive God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. Peter comes to understand the death of Jesus is the death of the Jew-Gentile divine. He comes to understand that Jesus came to create one new humanity, one new family of believers drawn from every nation. Now, this declaring of all foods clean that Jesus does in Mark 7 and how this connects with Acts 10, this really only makes sense, again, if you understand the symbolism of those laws and the mission that Jesus came to launch. Indeed, it's very fitting. We'll talk about this next week, but it's very fitting we move from this, Jesus declaring all foods clean, to the next story in Mark's Gospel. The very next story in Mark 7 is Jesus taking another step towards this global mission when He ministers to a Gentile woman and serves her and shares His salvation with her and with her God. The point is this. Certainly the people of God still have boundaries. The church still is a bounded community. The church is a distinct community from the world set off by her faith and her holy way of life. But that boundary doesn't mean we have nothing to do with the world. It doesn't mean we don't associate with the world or mingle with the world. Rather, it means we are sent into the world as followers of Jesus Spreading His holiness, spreading His light and His love and His blessing means we're sent into the world to recruit new followers of Jesus as we show the world the new and true way of being human found in Him. While we want to exclude worldliness from our lives, we do not want to exclude the world from the love of God. We are called to manifest the love of God in the world. And if we do the kind of thing the Pharisees were doing, if we put the wrong kinds of boundaries around the church, 
What's the effect? The effect is to choke out love like the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought the world would recognize them as God's people by their ceremonial washings and their dietary rules. They thought the world would recognize them as God's people by their holy hands and their holy food. Jesus said, no, the world will recognize My people. The world will recognize My disciples by their love. By their love for one another. By their holy and righteous way of life. For the Pharisees, hatred was the fulfillment of the law. You hate the right people. You exclude the right people. That's how you prove your holiness. Jesus comes and says, no, it's by love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is how you show you are the true people of God. Jesus came to make God accessible to everyone. Don't get in the way of that. Rather, show the way to that. By how you live, how you speak, how you engage with your neighbors and your co-workers and your family workers. Understand, this is our mission. This is our agenda. Jesus has cleansed the world. We're to go out and be His agents of blessing, manifesting His love and His truth wherever we go. Well, finally, a third lesson here. Transformation. Jesus said what comes out of a man defiles him. In other words, the root of the problem is the heart. It's our heart that needs to be washed. It's, it's our heart that needs to be cleansed. In the Scriptures, the heart is the center of the human person. It's what drives us to act as we do. Proverbs 4.23 summarizes it well. It says, out of the heart are the great issues of life. Jesus gets at this too with a particular metaphor He uses. He says, a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree will produce good fruit. It's your heart that determines what kind of tree you are. A defiled heart will pump uncleanness through your whole body, through your whole person, through your whole life, and out into the world. A good heart will pump cleanness throughout your whole body, your whole life, and out into the world. Now we see here that the law could not fix the defiled human heart. The law couldn't do the trick. The law couldn't bring the kind of cleansing that was really needed. Oh, perhaps under the law you could have clean hands, but you could not have a clean heart. And so there was a need all along for a new covenant in which God would write the law on the hearts of His people. Not just on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of His people. That is to say, He would transform His people outside in and inside out. And that's the promise you find in the prophets in passages like Jeremiah 31. God says to the people in Jeremiah 31, there is a day coming when I will make a new covenant with my people and I will put my law in your hearts and in your minds. I will write my law on your hearts. Again, in the old covenant, the law was inscribed on tablets of stone. Now it will be written on us, in us, on our hearts. And when God writes His law on our hearts, it brings about a total transformation. And I think that transformation is implied for us here in this passage. What kind of transformation are we talking about? Well, look at that list, that vice list in verses 21 and 22. The kinds of evil intentions that flow out of the defiled human heart. There are actually here 12 kinds of evil desires or evil 
practices that Jesus lists. Why 12? Why does Jesus list 12? Well, remember, there are also 12 baskets of leftovers picked up after the multitudes were fed in the previous chapter. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. It's the number of the covenant nation. This list is a way of Jesus saying to the Pharisees, this is what the 12 tribes of Israel are like under your leadership. Because you do not understand where real uncleanness comes from, this is what Israel is like under your authority, under your oversight. These are the kinds of things that flow out of the heart of Israel. And indeed, out of the heart of all sons of Adam. What are they? What does Jesus list here? He says adulteries. That would be mental and physical violations of the marriage covenant. Fornications, that's a broad term to cover any kind of sexual sin. Any kind of, uh, all the way you could say from lust to sex between people who are not married. Murders. Uh, it, it covers any kind of illegitimate hatred or violence. Thefts. Taking what is not yours. Covetousness. That is a refusal to be content with God's calling for you and God's provision, God's providence. The place God has assigned you. Wickedness. Broad term again that would describe any kind of practice that contradicts God's word. Deceit. That is living by dishonesty. Being dishonest in your dealings with others. Lewdness. This would be delighting in things that are evil or vile or shameful. An evil eye. It's a way of describing greed or a love of money. And actually, you need to know, a lot of these things are, are the very sins that are identified with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, including this one, a love of money. Blasphemy, seeking, speaking falsely about God, speaking in untrue ways of the true God. Pride, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Arrogance, self-sufficiency. And foolishness, a stubborn Rejection of God's wisdom, a refusal to receive correction. That's what Israel is like under the leadership of the Pharisees. That's what's flowing out of the heart of Israel. But when Jesus comes, and when Jesus cleanses our hearts and writes His law on our hearts, what happens? What virtues does Jesus put in the place of these vices? Well, in place of these vices, you have their opposites. So in place of adulteries and fornications, what do you have? You have mental and physical sexual purity. You have chastity outside of marriage, chastity outside of marriage, faithfulness inside of marriage. In place of murders and hatred, you have love for neighbor, even love for enemy. In place of thefts and covetousness and greed, you have contentedness and generosity. In place of deceit and wickedness and lewdness, you have a desire and a delight in what is true and good and beautiful. In place of blasphemy, you have a desire to speak and believe the truth about God and to give God praise and thanks. And in place of pride, you have humility. And finally, in place of foolishness, you have wisdom. The kind of wisdom that God alone gives through His Son. Jesus. See, through the work of Jesus, God transforms our hearts. He transforms our desires. He drives out the old affections and He implants new affections, new desires. 
And so now with clean hands and clean hearts, with hands and hearts washed by Jesus, we're able to draw near to God. We're able to live in a way that, that pleases Him and that honors Him inside and out. Jesus offers a cure for our defiled hearts. Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the answer. Trust Him. Trust Him and He will forgive you all your uncleanness. Trust Him and He will transform your heart. Oh sure, you're still going to struggle with sin. We live in the tension between the work He has already begun in us and the fact that it's not yet complete. But by faith, we know He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. And so in the meantime, what do we do? We fight and we strive against sin and for holiness. And we trust that by the grace of God, we will grow more and more to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Father, we do thank You for the salvation we have in Christ Jesus. Oh, it is so great a salvation. We thank You for rescuing us from the wrath, rescuing us from ourselves, our own sinful, wayward, defiling desires. We thank You that in Jesus there is a new covenant. A covenant that's open to all. To all the nations. To all peoples. And then in Him we can have forgiveness. And we can be renewed. We thank You for all of this. By Your grace and for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.